We're talking religion and politics on the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? Challenging the mindset of the partisan evangelical church and asking the question, is God really a conservative Republican? And does God require his followers to be? Podcasting worldwide on the NPE network at npepodcast.com. This is the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast with the Nonpartisan Evangelical himself, your host, Paul Swearingen. All right, I'm Paul, the Nonpartisan Evangelical. Glad to be with you today and going to have a fun conversation with uh, a, a new friend of mine and somebody I hope you're going to get to know in our NPE community. His name is Lauren D'Amico. He's a blogger. He's a thinker. He's a Christian. He's all of those things. And he started this really interesting Facebook group, which is kind of where I got connected with him. And it's called Intersecting Faith and Politics. And we both sort of have similar evangelical backgrounds. I call myself the nonpartisan evangelical. And Lauren, I'm glad you're with me today. And you you call yourself in the blog we uh, we released the other day on the site, you're, you're uh, a liberal evangelical. Now, isn't, isn't that an oxymoron? You know, I, I grew up probably thinking it was as well. And when I first put that post out a couple of years back, I went, what's what's a good title to put on this thing that'll get people to read it and be be provocative? And, and so I, I figured that was a good way to to make a few people scratch their heads and, and see what I had to say. And and so you had a little bit of a, a theological journey. Maybe give us just a brief background of, of what evangelical meant to you growing up and, and in sort of your younger adult years and, and what caused that to, to turn? Sure. I uh, was was saved about six. My parents came out of the New Age movement, was saved and somewhat connected with YWAM Kona, and then I ended up at Bethel Church in Reading and was part of the revival movement and all of that for, for many years. And then went to college at Simpson University, which was, was and is a Christian Missionary Alliance University. And that was really where I started to kind of broaden my view, I guess, of, of Christianity. Because I, I came into there being told, what we're doing at Bethel, this is right, and this is the most Christian thing you could be doing. And was actually commissioned to go bring that into Simpson University. And landed there and started to realize, well, wait a sec, maybe we're not actually the only game in town here. And maybe we're not the only one that, that has a an, an angle on, on who God is and his relationship to us. And for those who may not know and may not be familiar sort of with some of our lingo sometimes, Bethel Church is, is a big, big church that, that impacts Christian people all over the world out of Redding, California. They're good, good friends of ours. And, and you were there with them. And, and, and so they sent you to Simpson and, and that's interesting. And you started figuring these things out. And so sometimes for me, it was, it was a matter of, of even being in, in pastoral training that I went through that I heard somebody that had a different belief of the end of the world. They, they interpreted Revelation, the book of Revelations of John differently than me. And I had been so in my bubble of evangelical Christianity that I didn't I didn't realize there were Christians, there were people that loved God, that there were good people, I would say, who believed anything differently than the than the what we call eschatology, the in, belief of end times, than than everybody I knew. And to hear that there were good people that that loved God who were just as Christian as me, who believed something different, was was a shocker for me, which I'm embarrassed to say now. 
And, and, and sounds like that was sort of a similar trip for you as well. It was. I mean, I, so I landed at Simpson University and in the first year I was there on our campus paper, there were articles about how amazing Bethel was. And then there was another article saying that they were the Antichrist. And, and it was bizarre. You know, this was raging in a university that had all of maybe 600 people or something, actually probably less than that. But there was just, you know, clearly these ends of the spectrum. And, and as I was going, okay, God, what, is, what does this actually look like and how does this really work? And I, I felt like the analogy I was kind of given was an, an analogy of, of cake and icing. And I was explaining this to my kids the other day, and one of them was like, oh, I love icing. And the other one's like, no, I don't like icing. And I was like, oh, this is perfect. Because the, the analogy was really that there's, there's some very core tenets of our faith, and those are like cake. And we can all agree on the cake. And then there's all sorts of other things, you know, praying for the sick, healing, signs and wonders, speaking in tongues, all these different things, prophetic they're like icing. And it felt like the Holy Spirit was saying, look, like, just because one person likes the icing and the other doesn't, doesn't mean we have to say, well, this person's not a Christian and this person is. We can all just enjoy that we enjoy the cake. Wow. Well, that's a, that's a good way to look at it. And I think that's an important thing because one of the topics that we want to talk about today is is this Christian musician named John Steingard from a band called Hawk Nelson, which I think you, you've heard of them. I, I don't know anything about Christian pop music, and I sort of wear that proudly, probably, which I shouldn't. But uh, John Steingard has come out in, in recent days and posted that he no longer believes in God. And it's been kind of a shocker in the Christian world. And, and this is on the heels of recently a Hillsong very famous worship leader kind of came out and made that same declaration. And I think I think what, what we look at the danger of if we start to say, you have to believe our theology, and it's the only theology, and then you start mixing political belief into that. So our theology is the only theology, and then one particular party is the only party that adheres to that theology. What we're telling people is you have to buy the whole bit reject the whole bit, don't you think? And, and so what we're seeing are young people like John Steingard saying, well, I can't buy the whole bit, so I guess I have to reject the whole thing. That was really what struck me when I, when I went through John's post, because he, he posted a pretty lengthy thing talking about the journey he had gone through to get to the point of making that statement. And it was interesting because as I read it, I was going through it and he was like, well, you know, I kind of realized that maybe this theology didn't make sense. And then I realized that that one maybe didn't make sense. And I was going, yeah, these are theologies that aren't biblical. They're, they're extra-biblical theology that we've added to try and maybe insulate our core theology. You know, maybe, maybe, we've, maybe we've tried to protect ourselves a little more than perhaps God even initially intended. And so as these other pieces fell apart, he reached a point that he went, well, then I can't believe any of it. And that was, that was the part that I found really sad, was I was reading through it and going, yeah, I kind of agree with that, I kind of agree with that, I kind of agree with that oh, wow, that's an awful conclusion to reach. And it, it really, it honestly made me sad for him that he wasn't able to go, okay, here are all these things that have been added on top of Christianity and instead just go back and really dive in and go, well, what, what was Jesus actually teaching versus what are all these things that I've learned my entire life? The thing that's important is we uh, allow each other to start to ask questions. Rob Bell basically got kicked out of evangelicalism because he had the audacity to ask is hell what we've always believed hell is? And I think we, I think we see Christianity as a whole and, and even evangelical Christianity shrinking as a percentage of population and particularly in millennials and younger because we don't allow those questions to be asked. And they're asking those questions and the internet is providing answers. And if we're not allowing young people to ask those questions in church, 
they're going to start asking those questions somewhere else and may find out some different answers. Well, it's so amazing to me, given the history of Protestantism, that we're the one refusing questions. Right. We, we started with somebody nailing up 95 questions to a door. And I, I was talking to my wife about it the other day, and I went, boy, talk about offensive. To, to write down a list of 95 things you think are wrong with the church and post it up on the front door of the church. And that's that's how we got started. You know, that's, that's how Protestantism spun off of Catholicism. And yet at this point, when you start to bring up these types of questions, you know, one or two at a time, not even 95 at a time, you get this reaction of, oh my gosh, what are you doing? Tim, you said there are some things he's asking that aren't even biblical issues that were causing him to reject the church. Do you have an example of that? He was looking at the Bible and going, we've got this text, and is it perfect? Is it perfectly inerrant? And he'd been taught this theology his whole life, that the Bible was perfectly inerrant. And it was interesting because he said he he spoke to his father-in-law, who was also a pastor, and was kind of sharing that concern with him. And his father-in-law kind of said, well, if you throw out that theology, what do you have left? And his conclusion was, well, nothing. And that was something that to me i went no like you can throw out the theology of inerrancy and say no the bible was inspired by god and these and these writers wrote to the best of their ability what they feel god was telling them but it didn't come out perfect and you can have that theology and still be a christian still believe that there is a god and that was that was the one that was just kind of amazing to me because i've i've had the same conversation with various pastors and such over the years and it's just it's this like hard stop that's very scary. It's it's our our daughter attends Pepperdine called me one day and said, "Dad, did you know that other religions have a Noah story? That that's different than yeah. Noah." And and she said, "And our teacher told us it might be a myth altogether." And and I'm thinking, "Wow, we're paying a ton of money to send our daughter to this Christian college and they're wrecking her theology." <laughs> but yes, I think we have to start being honest uh, about some of those things. And, and and when I was growing up, it was just like, hey, why? This seems like a little weird, this thing I'm reading in the Bible. Yeah, let's just kind of ignore that and just know that it's inerrant and all of these things. And, and again, so then when I'm faced with the reality of like, hey, some of this stuff doesn't match up or or even in seminary being taught, yeah, somebody added that chapter later into the text, you know, and things like that. And we just sort of throw them off. And it's not that big a deal. And oh, maybe the woman caught in adultery story wasn't in that original thing. you know. And, and then we start learning that we start going, well, maybe I've been told a whole bunch of lies in, the, in these things. And that's, that's the real danger there. If we're not open and willing to own that, that's going to happen. And so what do we do if we start to say, what, what you just said, that very heretical statement of maybe it's not inerrant, how do we know we're believing the right thing then? I mean, I think it's a good question. And I mean, to, to me, it really, it has to come back to that we're looking for truth. And it's something that, you know, for, for years now, I feel like I've heard, you know, the, the Republicans or the evangelicals or this group or that group, we're all focused on truth. And it feels like... Th- the more I've kind of dug into that, and especially over the past several years of the political situation, we've started to see, well, maybe it's not so much truth that we're focused on. But I think really, if if what we're looking for is truth and we're seeking after truth, I think we can find that. And I think we can find it through through looking in the Bible and and through talking to other believers and through what are the things that the Holy Spirit really resonates with and and going through that process. And I think it's 
it's a much more complex process. I, I said to my dad last night, half jokingly, I said, you know, there's days that I really wish I was Catholic. I could just ask the Pope and be done with it. You know, but choosing to not be Catholic, we we choose to to take on these things ourselves of having to figure out, okay, where is truth and what do I believe, right? You know, Pilate asked 2,000 years ago, he asked Jesus, what is truth? And in, in many ways, I feel like that is the question that should echo down through the through the millennia. I think we forget sometimes that the guys running around starting the church in the New Testament, they didn't have the New Testament. They right. they just went and did what they did, and then they came back together and they compared notes, and they're like, this is happening, what do you think? I don't know, what do you think? And and they had to work it through together, and, and I, I think that's this uh, idea of come let us reason together is, hey, I've seen this, I've seen this, let's ask each other what we think about that and let's ask God to give us insight into that and and maybe that's a little bit how we're supposed to live. Yeah. When the other thing I found interesting when I when I learned it a while back was the Bible wasn't even written in the order that we have it presented, right? The the epistles were written long before the gospels, which is interesting because if you if you think of it as being written in the order it's presented in, then you kind of figure, well, you know, by the time Paul's out there he already has the gospels to work with. When you realize, no, like Paul was probably one of the first ones writing, all of a sudden what you're saying becomes even more true of like, they really were, they were figuring this out as they went. And based on a lot of oral tradition, which we know they were much better at than we were, but based on these oral traditions that have been handed down from the first apostles, some of whom were still living, some of whom weren't by the time it was being written down. I always have this had this picture in my mind that somebody like sort of stretched their hands toward heaven and these 66 books came together and were bound in this leather binding and boom, we had the Bible and it was miraculous and we knew that. And, and again, it was seminary running me to learn that, hey, there were other books that people thought should have been in, and there were books in there that people thought shouldn't have been in there, and they argued a lot about it. Uh, start, sort of changed my perception of what we were reading there, and, and particularly the idea of, yes, human beings did write this book, and they wrote it from their cultural perspective and their human perspective, and all of that is a part of it. And it doesn't take anything away from it being uh, an awesome representation of the story of who God is, but it does change how we have to interact with it and how we have to interact with each other because of it. And I always want to point out to people when when I say things like that, because some people immediately go, well, you know, let's just take it off the shelf then and throw it out. And it's, no, this isn't this isn't a statement of just throw out the Bible. Like, that's that's not the point. The point is just let's have a realistic view of what is this book that we're reading. And, you know, again, going back to truth, that if, if we're truly believing the truth about it, the truth should set us free. Again, the Bible says that, right? That, the, that, that we'll know the truth and the truth will set us free. Lauren D'Amico is, is with us, and, and you released a blog today that I think is, is timely with some things we have going on in culture. We always love to hit cultural issues, and it's called Should the Powerful Apologize? What, what should they be apologizing for, and should they apologize, Lauren? Yeah, this was this was a really interesting blog to write, and it it came about. It started out about a week ago. I was on a a panel based group that was discussing race relations, and it was interesting because one of the one of the African American members of the panel he said, "My kids ask me why are we always the ones apologizing, and why are we always the ones having to forgive without anybody else apologizing." And it was funny because it, it got me thinking about it. And I went, gosh, like, I, I feel like I've kind of had that same experience, you know, growing up of, you know, what, what was up with the fact that that adult didn't apologize? So I went and apologized first. And so as I, as I processed through it, I went, you know, this is a core part of, 
American culture, white culture. I, I don't even know. I don't know where the where the boundaries of this are. But we have this core concept that the powerless always apologize to the powerful. You know, if you're an employee and you have a spat with your boss, your boss doesn't usually come and apologize. You apologize. And then they tell you that maybe you can keep your job. And so we've we've created this bizarre power dynamic with apology and repentance that I, I don't see anywhere in the Bible. And so I, I really wanted to call that out and go, we need to we need to turn the tables on this like crazy and realize that the powerful should be the ones doing the apologizing because we're we're often the ones doing the hurting. Isn't, isn't, I mean, that's a concept, isn't it? That's a, yeah. I ha I have made a point in my life to to tell my kids I'm sorry and 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 to point to particular incidents that happened in their life and say when that happened I was completely wrong. That was me. You you did nothing to deserve that. That was your your dad is not. He's human and he's not always the healthiest guy that he's supposed to be because I I believe otherwise we create injustices and, and I do coaching with people now and I see how those childhood injustices affect us through the whole rest of our life. Now imagine groups of people that have suffered injustice for centuries, how that impacts them. And so I can say, hey, I never had a slave and my family never had a slave, but I'm still responsible to, to occupy the space hear the pain and say, when that happened, that was wrong. And and without any hesitation, say that was wrong. I think having that humility to step into this conversation, it was something I said in, in the, I called it kind of editor's notes at the beginning of it, because I, I amended it this morning before I published it. I said, you know, for, for too long, I've taken the approach of going, well, I'm not the one out there killing somebody or discriminating against somebody or whatever. So I can just kind of let you know them whoever them is let them deal with this because it's you know it's not my issue and it's the more we see this go on the more it's no this is everybody's issue and we were all either benefiting or reaping the consequences of this power structure the way it sits right now and it's it's detrimental to too many lives for us to just sit here and just you know pretend it's pretend it's not our problem i've seen the the video of of Ahmad Arbery and seeing the video of, of now George Floyd, which uh, has come out here in the last couple of days, the, the African-American gentleman who the police officer has his knee on his neck and until he passes away. What does, what does repent? Uh, okay, apologize. Let me say apologize. I started to say repentance because I do believe there's some repentance that has to come. But so what does an apology of the powerful look like in that? That's, I think that's what a lot of us are struggling with right now. We want to yeah, we're mortified by this, but what what's my responsibility and what does that apology even look like? I think it's a good question and and you know, you, you kind of broached the topic of apology versus repentance. And you know, we're we're told as kids, you know, you're going to go sit in time out if you don't apologize to your brother. So we we come out grimacing with our teeth clenched, we say, "I'm sorry. <laughs> now can I not go sit in time out?" And that's that's nothing. You know, it, that's that's not an apology. It's not repentance and it doesn't mean you're not going to go do the same thing 5 minutes later. And really what we need in our culture is that repentance where we're we're changing how we're behaving and so what's the difference to me an apology is a is a statement of you know you're right that was wrong i did it you, you got me versus repentance you know I, I think in the greek it really comes back to it's a it's a turning around it's 180 degrees you know it's i'm i'm driving north on the freeway now i'm going to turn around and go south and 
I think the hard part is we've been driving in this direction of racial segregation now for what, 300 years, something like that. And yeah, we've put the brakes on it. And it's, I think, I think the train has a little less uh, coal being burnt, so it's not moving as fast, but we're still in that direction. And that's still so much, so much of the mindset. And I mean, it's, it's something I, I personally find myself challenged with where it's, you know, what's my initial reaction to a situation and how much do my racial prejudices impact that initial reaction? And how do I, how do I change that for me? let alone for, you know, some cop who I'm sure was stressed and, you know, was running running on adrenaline and was acting out of, you know, not only his training, however good or bad that may have been, but out of, you know, out of his fight or flight response of, you know, for whatever reason, you know, we don't, most of these videos haven't shown the what happened before all of this happened. So we don't know why he was running in fight or flight, but presumably he was, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt there. And so to an extent, I look and go, well, how many of us, if we were in that fight or flight response, might have behaved similarly? I don't know. You know, but as as a culture, I think we have to begin by, like you say, acknowledging it and and go from there to going, OK, how do our leaders repent for this? How do we start electing leaders who are willing to repent for this? who are willing to take ownership for it. This is Paul. Glad you're listening to my conversation with Lauren D'Amico here on the Nonpartisan Evangelical at NPEPodcast.com. I want to interrupt for just a couple of seconds to say a couple of things. And one is this. We're going to have fun together on these conversations, and Lauren and I are going to make some jokes. And some of those jokes may make you feel like, ow, that kind of hurts, and I'm going to shut off this podcast. Well, let me encourage you not to do that. If, if we say something stupid or out of our humanness, just I give you permission just to brush that joke off and say, oh, that's just Paul being an idiot. But I want to hear what has to be said and what's important for me to hear. So I give you permission to do that because sometimes our humor can get in the way of sharing important context. But we also want to be able to have fun and enjoy the discussion. So you have my permission to do that. Secondly, uh, I want to encourage you, if you enjoy the podcast and the things we do on the Nonpartisan Evangelical, to join our NPE Patreon community. And the reason I ask this is because we, we want to expand our reach and what we do. And some of that does require finances. And so the uh, NPE community is financed, and I say that at a very humble, low level, uh, through our Patreon community. And if you join the Patreon community by going to our website at nppodcast.com, click on that Patreon button in the upper right-hand corner, you'll have access to some special content my wife and I do and some other things, and I'll send you an autographed copy of my book, Joseph Comes to Town. But mostly I just want it to be a place where we're friends and you're saying this means enough to me to put a little bit of finance into it every month. And you can join the Patreon community for as low a cost as $5.99 a month. It's less than Netflix, I think. It's less than Netflix. And yes, we don't give as much content as Netflix does, but uh, it's just your way of interacting with me and saying this matters enough for me to put just a little bit of money behind it. And I'll send you an autographed copy of my book as a, as a reward for that. And we'll have some fun interacting on the Patreon page. So go to the NPEpodcast.com website. That's nonpartisan evangelical NPEpodcast.com. Click on the Patreon button in the upper right-hand corner and all that good stuff will come to you. 
when you sign up. Now, back to the conversation with Lauren D'Amico, my friend on the NPE Podcast at npepodcast.com. Lauren D'Amico is who we're talking to. The, the Facebook page is Intersecting Faith and Politics. His blog is on the npepodcast.com website. You're, you're right. Repentance means change your direction, change your mind. So I, I see an apology sometimes. It's like, I'm sorry, can we move on now? Right. And I think, our, I think we have to hear that our, our, our friends, our brothers and sisters of color, of minority communities are saying, hey, I'm sorry isn't enough anymore. This has happened too many times. And so for me, the data is, is inarguable. People of color get arrested way out of proportion to their, their percentage of the population. So clearly, so either, I mean, that's, that's incontrovertible. Nobody can argue that. So it's either like, well, they're just worse people inherently, and they're going to get arrested more often because they're bad, and the rest of us need to be saved from them, or there's something wrong in the system. And, and we, are, we should not be defensive. I don't think it's saying I'm anti-cop to say there's something wrong in the system that because you're watching the video of this officer with his knee on this guy's neck and you're just going, why won't you get off of him? Get off of him. He's not even moving anymore. So there's something, like you say, in the training, in the culture, and, and in his experience as a police officer, that makes him say, I have to be totally dominant over this moment and over this person because X, Y, Z. So we, we, it's a system issue. If we just say it's that guy is bad and the three guys that didn't stop him are bad, then we're missing the point of there's something systemic that is the problem here. Yeah. The other thing I called out in that blog post was we tend to think of power and strength kind of almost synonymously or something. And I said, you know, no, it actually takes way more strength to apologize, to repent. It takes more security in yourself. And so to me, when I look and go, okay, we've got people that are unwilling to repent, unwilling to even apologize. To me, I look at that and I go, that means these people really don't have very much self-confidence, self, you know, self-strength in themselves. You know, and, and again, I, I hate to I hate to to, to do too much picking a part of this one person who committed this act because I don't know their background. You right. know, I, I don't know what happened that day or I have no idea. But, you know, again, I, I kind of look at that and go, boy, in that moment, for some reason, he must have really felt unconfident which again is odd as a cop, but you know, is that, how, how do we address that issue that you have, you have people that are, are so unconfident in themselves that they're saying, oh my gosh, I have to exert this physical confidence over somebody else in order to somehow feel better or something. I, I don't know. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. I think particularly for a Christian person, if you say I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, then we have to look at his model and his model was I'm willing to lay down my life. I'm willing to lay down my reputation. I'm willing to be despised by the reputable good people in my culture to stand with people that are less powerful. And and the truth is, he was, he himself was, uh, was was in a, in people groups that were they were oppressed in religiously, socioeconomically, 
governmentally in every way he was from an oppressed population and he refused to live oppressed and and i think his whole model is if you're powerful like you're saying uh, even if injustice is coming at me i can be powerful and refuse to partake in these things like i've seen other people do and when i'm willing to be powerful and lay down myself for others i actually can can truly change things for the better and so christians we ought to be the first i think to be saying, I think what Jesus would be doing here is sitting with people of color and saying, tell me your story. How can I walk with you? How can I put my reputation and my life on the line for you? Because that's where change starts to happen. I think that's really well said. I mean, if you if you look at, okay, what were the most powerful things that Jesus did while he was here on earth? You know, we often go, well, you know, raising Lazarus or whatever. But again, in the context we're discussing, you know, was the most powerful thing he did laying down his life or was one of the most powerful things he did washing the disciples feet. I mean, that's a, it's an amazing image when you, when you think on it. I mean, I've, I've done, I've done Seder Passovers with, with Christian groups and sometimes we'll wash each other's feet. And it's in our culture, it's cute, right? Maybe somebody has some toe jam or maybe there's a little bit of lint between their toes or something, right? <laughs> we don't live in a culture where, where our feet are disgusting and covered in manure and bugs and just all sorts of junk. Washing somebody's feet in that culture was, I don't even know, it was like, you know, going over to your neighbor's house and saying, hey, I'll pick up your dog poop with my bare hands or something. Like people's feet were gross. It was the, it was the lowest job in the household. It was yeah. what the least worthy person would do. Right. And so here, here Jesus says, look, I am so confident in myself. And it, it, I forget which gospel it is, but he, it goes through his confidence in himself. He says, you know, I came from God, I'm ascending to God. And therefore, he took off his outer garment. And so you see Jesus going, I'm strong, I'm fine, I'm confident in myself, and therefore I can take the absolute lowest position. Yeah. And, and I, th I think we miss that if we don't understand what's happening in, in a scripture like that, or that the Samaritans were the most despised people in the culture. They were the oppressed. They were oppressed by the oppressed. And, and, and Jews felt they had a right to have that feeling about Samaritans because they had stolen their land. They had perverted their religion. All of those things were true. And the tax collectors were traitors that were robbing their own people to give to an oppressor. So they felt fully justified in hating these people. And those are the people that Jesus went and sat with. And he would say, no, religious good people, you Little League baseball coaches and Girl Scout masters, I'm not going to sit with you. I'm going to sit with these dregs of culture that you don't think are worthy of God's favor. That's who I'm hanging out with. And, and I think we miss the power of, of sitting with people and hearing their stories, and particularly if it's outside of our comfort zone to do so. On this uh, panel that I was on, somebody asked, you know, how many of the white people have a close African-American friend? And I went, can I kind of disappear now? I don't. And it was, you know, it was a challenge of, wow, no, that's true. And, you know, I, I actually, I do, I do have a friend who's, they're, they're from further south and they're, they're from an African-American background. They're from, from Central America. But again, we're not super, super close friends. You know, if I, if I were to say, you know, who are my top five, 10 friends, they're all white. And, you know, how do we even pretend to be able to understand what's going on when we have so little circle of understanding to even draw from? Yeah, I, I did a podcast with a young woman recently that was really painful because she was very raw and honest. She is a Hispanic person that works with, I call them disadvantaged community. She didn't like that word, so I apologize for using that word. But And, and she said some things that were really painful for me to hear. 
about my privilege and uh, and about being a moderate even she was like congratulations on being a moderate and being comfortable while i'm hurting you know and and my people are hurting some things like that that i could easily go oh that's not fair and that's not the whole truth and you don't know what i do and i think though i think that's what humbling yourself really means when you're a person of power as you're talking about in your blog i have to be willing to lay down my offense first because yeah. i'm coming from the privileged community i have to be willing to say I'm going to hear everything you have to hear, even if it pinches, if it feels really unfair, because I'm I'm sitting in that place of the oppressor for a hundred years, even if of three hundred years, even if I don't believe so. And and even if even if I personally am not sitting in that role, one of the things that a friend of mine called out was was again, we've all stood to benefit from it. Right. And the the thing she said was, in our country, so much of wealth is passed through housing. And it wasn't that long ago that there were very, very discriminatory laws about housing lending all the way up to the federal government. And so you had this situation where the just the wealth passed down that our generation is able to appreciate and enjoy is just radically different because of these discriminatory laws that aren't that long ago. I think I think they were gotten rid of maybe 50, 60 years ago, something like that. I don't have the dates handy. But. I'm really glad you mentioned that because we actually have a resource here in Fresno called Vision 22. The website is vision22.org, and it does tell of this history in Fresno. The federal government drew a red line. It's called redlining, yep. exactly. and there was a red, and it's happened all over the country, and they drew a red line on the map, and they said minorities cannot buy houses north of this line. And even when that became, I think it was outlawed in the 60s, which is not that long ago, by the yeah. way. And even when it was outlawed, people would still write it into their their sales contract. When they would sell their house to somebody, the, the sales contract would say, you cannot sell this house to a Chinese person or a black person or an Armenian in, in, our, in our town here. They would actually list the minorities that you are not allowed to sell the house to going forward. So that's history that's not that long ago. And, uh, and we have to own and understand that to be able to start getting to reconciliation and healing. Well, and, and not only that, but the, the FHA and the Fannie Freddie lenders, they wouldn't lend to a neighborhood that had been redlined. Uh, and somebody, somebody made the point uh, recently, I forget who I, who I had heard this from, but they said, if you drive through these large cities, you can still pick out the areas that were redlined, both because it wasn't that long ago and it takes time for things to shift. And I've... I've been curious to just drive into some city I don't know and just try and pick it out and just see see how true that that is but I've I've got my hunch that they're they're probably pretty it's probably pretty accurate. And if you look at Fresno which is a, a city the, the city where I am that doesn't have natural boundaries to stop the city from from expanding then then you have white flight and so there was a red line set but then these sort of the, these red lines just happen and they keep moving and they keep moving and as the more economically advantaged people continue to move out of regions into other regions to get away from those people as i throw up my air quotes the redlining continues whether it's intentional and, and codified or not we've seen it through our history and a really good resource for this. I don't know if you have any. I, I, you know, New York. The New York Times did a 1619 project, and 1619 was the year the first slaves were brought to to the United States. And I would really encourage people. And I know some of you are going to say New York Times, uh, 
Trust me, it's really good. The 1619 Project, it's a great series of stories, and they did a podcast around it. And it's, a, it's the history of how slavery was the economic driver of the United States. I and mean, we had slavery 100 years after it was illegal everywhere else. And it was a big economic driver for us. It was, it was the too-big-to-fail industry of you know America for hundreds and hundreds of years. And, and so, like you said, I think understanding that helps us understand how we all have benefited from that. There's an audio book I listened to. I think it was just called Evicted. I, th- I think that was the full name. But it was specifically studying evictions in the Milwaukee market, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, I think it was in the early 2000s, I want to say. And it was still talking about the racial impacts of all of these things that had happened. And it was, again, a really, really fascinating resource on kind of what is what does this all look like even not really not that long ago. And if there's anybody out there and I don't know what you would say to them, but anybody who thinks I, I don't. I don't have anything to do with this. This is not me. Why do I care about this? Yeah, I, I, I'm I'm upset by the videos I see, but why do I care? I, I'm telling you that if if we don't address this issue, I'm, and I've talked to some friends in our town, I'm concerned what it ends up as. What we see through history is when you have these ever-widening divides between have, the haves and have-nots, these different socioeconomic groups, racial groups, People eventually won't take it anymore. And and so I, I do get concerned that we are setting up some tender boxes that just the right spark brings some really nasty unrest in our city. So if anybody thinks, well, this really doesn't pertain to me, I'm trying to say, no, no, it pertains to you. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I mean, right right now when you look out at, at kind of what the big issues are, you've got the race issue going on, you've got everything that's been going on with COVID and a whole bunch of white groups that feel like they're somehow oppressed by having to wear a mask or something. And there's, there's all these groups right now that are, are really angry. (laughs) And I, I think it really is incumbent on us as Christians to go, wow, how do we bring the, the level of anger down? You know, how do we how do we mop up the lighter fluid, as I said, on, the, on another group, <laughs> because it, it really it feels like you've got you've got this situation where there's just lighter fluid everywhere. And and all it's going to take is a, a match in the wrong spot. And I, I, I read I care if it was this morning or last night, but they said that there's this whole group that went in and trashed one of the police substations in uh, Minneapolis. And I kind of had the same reaction you did of. On the one hand, I'm going, gosh, like, can't we not violently destroy things? Because that, that kind of undercuts the whole conversation here. But at the same time, I'm going, yeah, when this has been going on this long and hasn't made any progress, I I understand the frustration that causes you to just lash out and go, well, if, if there's nothing better to do, let's at least go burn something. And and I think the other thing to point out there is, remarkably, when, when we don't kill African-Americans, they don't go out and torch things. <laughs> So it, it seems like maybe it's most incumbent on us to stop this versus getting mad at the reactions that occur. Yeah. I coach people all the time when they're in conflict with other people. Put yourself in their space and, and try to think of what would be a reason that they would do this to me. You know, if we're, if we're counting an offense or an injustice, why would they do it? Did they do it because they're inherently bad or stupid and they just hate me? Or could there be another explanation? And I'm, and I'm saying that about people groups all the time. When a, when a young black man throws a brick through a, through a, a store window, is he doing that because he's inherently evil? Or is that's the only way he can express himself 
uh, in the situation. And and sometimes you do go, hey, guys, you shouldn't do that. And we remember during the Rodney King riots, the the white man being dragged out of the truck and beaten by those guys and, and how terrible that is. But at some point we have to recognize, just like you say, hey, if if we stop allowing these incidents to happen, then maybe won't, we won't have these other incidents to happen. So that repentance then starts to bring a space of understanding where I can hear the story of these other people and start to give them an outlet to, in a healthy way, express the injustice they're feeling. They're going to be less likely to throw the brick through the window. Yeah, exactly. The Bible verse that I like to use around that is Second Chronicles 7.14, uh, which is a popular one in Christian circles. And I think it's a good one for this because it, it says, if, if my people, this is God talking to his followers, and I think we could extrapolate that out to be Christian people today as well. It says, if, if they will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their ways, it has that word wicked in there. And so sometimes that's a stumbling block for people. So I just say, hey, turn from your ways. He's, God says, then I'll hear from heaven and I'll heal your land. And so if we want our land, our culture to be healed, if we truly want to make America great again, if I can steal that term, to me, that's, that's the formula right there. Humble yourselves, hear each other's stories, say, God, what's your plan for these people? And, and turn from the ways that said, I'm going to defend myself and my stuff, then then something can really happen and turn around. I don't know your thoughts on that. I think that's right on the money. And what, what you were saying before of that, you know, when, when Jesus says, what's the first and greatest commandment? It's love God and love others. And I was, I was talking to somebody online earlier about a, a different disadvantaged group. Um, and we, I, I won't open that particular topic at the moment, but they were saying, you know, how do we, how do we deal with the fact that we don't agree with these people and we're supposed to love them? And I said, you know, right now, maybe our best bet is to focus on the loving part. And and maybe when we can get to the point that we can all have a conversation and not feel threatened, then maybe we can go back and discuss, you know, is this right? Is this wrong? You know, do, do, do our theologies agree or whatever? But maybe right now we need to put the emphasis on the loving and and try and tone down the, the stress and anger a little bit. That's a good word. Uh, not a ton of time left, but I did want to get, so intersecting faith and politics. Now, religion and politics are the two things you're never supposed to talk about in mixed company, Lauren. So why are you putting the two together and talking about it on social media every single day? Well, I figured if, if two things were explosive, we might as well blow them up together, right? <laughs> Very good. So really where, where it came from was twofold. Um, when I was in college, I, I took a class called Intersecting Faith and Culture. And it was it was all about what, what relationship should there be between our, our faith and the culture that we're living in. And when everything happened with Trump rising to power, I looked at and I went, well, what we've seen now is an integration of faith and politics. We've seen the evangelical right as as one term. It should have a hyphen in it. It's it's one thing, and I went, well, this is this is crazy because the the right, the right wing, there's parts of it that maybe are are more Christian. There's parts of it that are very much not Christian, and the evangelicals have you know again parts where they overlap with the right wing and parts where they don't. And so I looked at it and I went, really, what we need to be talking about is how does our our faith as as kind of one element of discussion how does it intersect with our politics being kind of another element of discussion and there there are ways that that our faith should definitely influence our politics and perhaps there are ways that our politics maybe should influence how our faith plays out i i don't know but 
what there shouldn't be is the integration that we've seen now where if you say Christian, that means you're a Trumper. And if you say Trumper, that means you're probably a Christian. And now, you know, the term Christian really doesn't mean anything anymore. You hit me right at the end there. I was going with another question, but <laughs> why does it, why does neither of those terms mean each other? Tell me a little bit more about that. Unpack that. The term Christian in America has come to mean American, or it's come to mean I fly a flag, or maybe it's come to mean I'm white. Maybe it's come to mean I like Trump. But the term Christian has been so watered down because we've seen this integration of faith and politics where it's it's almost impossible to to tell where does my Christian theology end and where does my political ideology begin because they've just been so integrated together. I definitely see that. And, and this belief that being a Christian means you you are this patriotic person, you you are... You you name the list. You're you're a single issue voter for around abortion. You're you're anti gay marriage. All, you know those have become the definition of what is Christian, and and I don't think Jesus ever said that's the definition of what it is to be a follower of Jesus. And and so I think what what I hear you saying is none of those things are inherently wrong. You can hold those beliefs. You can be patriotic. But if those become a definition of who is in our club of Christianity and who is not, now we're out of line with what the Bible's telling us to do. It's interesting when you walk into a church that's flying an American flag and a Christian flag, because the American flag always flies higher than the Christian flag. And it's it's an interesting imagery, and I, I understand why we do it, and that's fine. But it's it's an interesting imagery because when you when you look at that and you see that imagery i was i was at our our kids school the other day and they were doing the pledge the american flag is the highest flying flag as these little kids are standing there holding them and when when that becomes our reality and not just how we how we put things on a stage but when that becomes our reality that the american flag flies the highest it means that our our Christianity has become subservient to our politics. Now you're now you're preaching at some people. I'll tell you <laughs> that. <laughs> yeah, I I think that there was quite a bit of hubbub around Jesus. Like Jesus, don't you care about the Jewish nation? Don't you care about Israel? We're being taxed to a, a totally injustice degree, and widows are being ripped off of their life savings or whatever and and jesus was like yeah that's a problem but i'm going after something bigger than and higher than than the nation of israel and and boy it, it almost sounds heretical when you say it like i'm after something bigger than the united states of america and it's funny because i have yeah. i have european friends and they're just like sometimes like you americans you you just don't know <laughs> how different your christianity looks from some of the rest of us in the world but but yeah, when we're about the kingdom of the United States more than we're about the kingdom of heaven, we're kind of a little bit offline. You you gave me a nice teaser for for another blog I'm going to be posting, oh, no. and it's it's really looking at the change that was occurring and was wanted in in first century first century AD, where you've got the Pharisees they wanted a political change, and Jesus came with it, and and John the Baptist came with an entirely different 
offer of change. So that'll be coming out sometime in the next couple of weeks. I always say the the Pharisees they were the mega crowd. They they were make Israel great again. They they wanted to see Israel restored as the greatest economic and military power on earth, and they knew God was going to send a Messiah to to fix that and do that. And when the Messiah showed up and he wasn't that guy, now they killed him. <laughs> and and sadly we've we've embraced that theology and to the level that we that of uh, substitutionist, I think it's called substitutionist theology or something right. like that, where where it said that you know, for a while it was that Christians were the new substitute for Israel, but I've also heard the same thing of that that the United States is the substitute for Israel, and you go, boy, that is not something I see anywhere in the Bible. That is that is entirely made up. It's bad theology, and it's again to kind of come full circle to what we were talking about at the beginning when we put out theology like that, and then people start to realize, wow, that's a lie. The question they then start to ask is, well, what else have I been lied to about? And, you know, again, just to go, it's so important that we speak the truth. We speak the truth in love, but we speak the truth. And, and that as we're, as we're mentoring and coaching other people and bringing up another generation of Christians, whether that's adults that we're coaching or our children, that we teach them what's actually true. Because the, the way we had the fall, you know, all the way back in the beginning of Genesis was that Satan introduced a tiny little lie and said, you know, did God really say this? And the answer was no, God really didn't say that. And, and then Eve comes back and says, well, you know, God said that we couldn't even touch it. And that was a lie too. And the, the reality was God had given a very simple commandment, but all of these extra little barriers had been built around it to try and protect them from that very simple commandment. And that was, in, in a very real sense, I think what, what caused all of this to unravel was these tiny little lies that got brought in. I, I like to say sometimes to people, you know, God is not a Republican. And in fact, I don't think he's even an American. And and people always laugh and they're like, huh, yeah, we know he's not. But you can <laughs> you can feel their <laughs> angst inside of like, oh, but that doesn't feel right because clearly he cares about Republican stuff and American stuff. I'm like, no, I, I I don't think he does quite as much as we do. For some odd reason, we started putting him in our books as a white guy. You know, it's interesting <laughs> when you talk to missionaries to China, they have him in their books as a Chinese guy, and you know, it's fine. We all we all want to feel like he's one of us. And, you know, throughout scripture, we see that Jesus is close to us and is a brother and all these things. And, you know, yeah, it might be a little awkward for, for you to feel like, oh, my brother's actually a guy who looks nothing like me. So, again, I get why we do it. But when we, when we then put that mindset inside of our heads to match, I feel like that's when we start to really have a problem. Yeah. And, and again, thinking of this proximity and knowing there are, are people who are different than us, you know, I, I've had the great opportunity recently to, to meet some Anabaptist people and some Quaker folks. And, and, and those are people who love God, who would say having an American flag in the church is a sin. It, you should not have any, there should be no patriotism for a country inside the church. And, and again, it sounds almost heretical to say it in America, but, but their point is, hey, we're, we're not about this kingdom. We're about doing what God would have us do. And, and we're talking about the people who were the strongest Christians in standing against slavery, while some evangelical pastors were using the Bible to endorse it. And so we're talking about really studly people who have stood for some really powerful things in their history saying, hey, we disagree with you on, on some of these things. 
I feel like that's really that's really where the conversation needs to be of how do we intersect faith with politics because we we have a long and rich history of that intersection occurring at different times and you know many people have rightly said that there was a lot of biblical influence on on the founding fathers on the founding documents and we've intersected in different ways at different times but as a as a pluralist society where we have not just evangelicals some people seem to find that surprising but in america we don't just have evangelicals we have all these different groups of christians we have atheists we have muslims and mormons and all sorts of other groups and if we're truly going to be the pluralistic society that the founding fathers explicitly said was their goal we have to figure out how to be okay with that and we have such a good story our story is God becoming human to reconnect with us. It's such a, a cool story to to make it about whether we sell a cake to a gay couple or not to me is just so cheapening what what we stand for and and we lose our message in the middle of all of that. And that's the real tragedy of this. And so finishing there on that point, Lauren, I know you're a guy of faith and and so I don't know if there's anything else you would share, but I would love for you just to finish praying for us, praying for this community and the audience and just whatever would be on your heart to finish us up. Absolutely. Well, Father, I just thank you for this time that Paul and I have had to to be together to discuss these things. And Lord, as people listen to this back, either either right now or they listen to a recording later, Father, I pray that you would that you would impact their hearts, Father, with exactly the word that you have for them, God, that the things we've said, the the jokes we've cracked, God, wouldn't get in the way of, of what your Holy Spirit wants to do to impact their hearts, Father. And Lord, I, I pray that for, for all of the audience, God, and for us, Father, that you would continue to give us wisdom on how to navigate these really complex issues that we're, that we're facing in this country during this season. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I appreciate that prayer, Lauren, and, and would echo what he prayed to anybody listening. If, if there was anything that came from me or from Lauren that was offensive and, and out of some of whoever we are rather than a message that God would want you to hear, then I, I just give you permission to to wipe that off and ignore it and just listen to what, what God would have you hear out of all of this as you walk it forward. So Lauren D'Amico, blogger on the npepodcast.com website. He's got another intriguing one coming out there soon you're not going to want to miss. And also the Facebook group, Intersecting Faith and Politics. Thanks for joining us today, and and we'll have you back on and keep talking as issues keep coming up here that are at the intersection of faith and politics. Sounds good. Well, thank you, Paul. All right, and thanks to everybody else. That'll do it for the podcast, the nonpartisan evangelical at npepodcast.com. Music.